Amen. 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 Go ahead and take a seat. Good morning. <clears throat> Say a quick prayer in your hearts for my cough so I don't drive you crazy all morning like I drive my wife crazy every day. She's like, why are you coughing so much? I'm like, I don't do it on purpose, you know? <laughs> so I'm trying to, trying to help out here. Hey, if you're new, fill out the connect card on your seat. Always a reminder, sign up for the newsletter. So many things are happening. We can't possibly announce them all or discuss them all. And so if you sign up for the newsletter, you will be in the know, okay? So that's important. Uh, We're going to continue our series throughout Ephesians. So we're going to be looking in Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. If you want to go ahead and open your Bible to Ephesians 5. Let's go. Let's go. Uh, Today we're talking about marriage. Marriage. Whoa. Now look. Before some of you check out already, hold up, hold up, hold up. Just wait a second. Okay, this marriage talk, number one, is not just for married people. I want you to consider how every human being on earth is affected by marriage. It's a huge part of all of our lives, whether you're married or not, in one way or another. It was long thought, and I think it still is, although this is under attack, that the household is the microcosm of society, and as households go, so society goes. And that is obviously in many ways under attack in terms of the the good of the household. But so it is also with the church that as households go in the church, so the church goes. We are only as mature and well as our households are mature and well. These are the places where all of our things and lives get lived out. And so this matters to all of us. I also want to remind you here, especially if you are a Christ follower, that this is a passage in the Bible, which means it applies to your life. No matter if you feel like it's circumstantially, it's in the Bible. Everything in the Bible has significance for your life. I want all of us, whether you're married or not, to learn relational principles of life that are going to apply in all your relationships, though we're going to see how specifically they apply in marriage. What we're going to see today is God's ideal marriage. God's ideal marriage. This, for some of you, is going to give you things to aim for as you prepare to get married or as you are currently married and trying to work on it and make sure it's a good marriage. For some of you, this might actually explain the reasons why your marriage is struggling. It could give you uh, the reasons for some of the symptoms that you are experiencing. This might help you navigate some of the challenges that you face in your marriage. For some of you, this might allow you to look back on unfortunately a bad season or a bad marriage And this might explain some of the biblical roots at some of those issues to help you understand more thoroughly what has gone wrong. Obviously, for all of us, there's lots of ways we do not live out the ideal marriage. We all need help. I also want to recognize in the room this morning, some of you have left bad marriages. There's a variety of people. Some of you have left bad marriages. Some of you are struggling through a difficult marriage now. Some of you are barely hanging on. Maybe some of you just sent papers to one of your spouses. Some of you grew up with good or bad marriages on display, and you've been dramatically affected by that. Some of you are single and really wish you were married already, and you're discontent and struggling to know God's will. Some of you are even unsure about the Christian understanding of marriage, maybe even skeptical a little bit about God's, what you might find, narrow-minded view of marriage and how that works. I just want to give these examples to say there are as many stories in the room as there are people. And the only person that could potentially talk to all of you is God. And so as I present to you what the text is saying about God's ideal marriage, I pray you would open your heart to hear what God might be saying to you this morning, wherever you're at. 
I cannot possibly caveat or qualify everything I say to apply to every potential situation that you have in your marriage, that you've seen in a marriage, or that you've been through in a marriage before. But I'm going to do my best to give you God's ideal and let that fall into your life wherever it fits, according to God's voice and leadership by the Holy Spirit. Most importantly, I hope you all understand that as we discuss marriage, and we're going to see this more thoroughly, I want you to see the beauty of the gospel of Jesus, that as every sermon and every Bible text and everything you could ever possibly learn is simply a pathway to experiencing and knowing the love of God revealed through Christ Jesus in his death and resurrection. And that whether you are married or not, whether you are in a good marriage or not, that this time today would lead you to Jesus. That it would lead you to know him more and to love him more and to enjoy him more. So in light of all of that, let's all come together and learn a little bit about marriage this morning. So Ephesians chapter 5, 21 through 33. This is going to tag on what we've been talking about since the last few weeks about being filled with the Spirit. So 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Okay, don't leave me yet, okay, wives? All right, just hang on. Give me 30 minutes, please, all right? Please. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything in their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Uh, You wives would be encouraged to know that God says about three times more things to husbands than wives, all right? So uh, praise the Lord for that. And uh, I want to encourage you, those who are married, all right, this is not a time to elbow your spouse, okay, when I say something, either two wives or two husbands, all right? This is not the time for that. If you want to go home later and discuss it kindly with them, that would be fantastic. But as I say something like, yeah, that's you, that's you, you know? Uh, As I've always said, the first person you are supposed to work on changing is yourself. And obviously you need God's help to do that. And so let the Lord speak to you. Let the Lord lead you. And if you have something you would like to discuss with your husband or wife later, or something that was brought up that you think is worthy of discussion, which should certainly happen, uh, please do so in the context of an appropriate place and do not embarrass them in public. All right. Okay, great. Are we all good on that? Fantastic. I'm trying to save y'all some trouble, all right? I'm trying to keep y'all from, from doing things you shouldn't do so that you can be happy this afternoon, all right? I'm not, I'm not trying to start fights. So here's what I want to do first. Before I talk to husbands and wives, I'm going to give you three big ideas about marriage and why this is important, three contexts in which we understand marriage. So the first kind of big background picture thought is Culture, marriage and culture. 
So I want you to understand very simply, and I'm not going to go into all the research, but there are actually many similarities to the time of the Bible that we're reading in our culture now. Uh, Let me say it like this. This is from a commentary I read, the Zondervan exegetical commentary. It says, Ephesians was thus written to a place and time where traditional Greek and Roman roles for women and wives were in a dynamic flux. Now, what he means by that and going through many, many, many research things and reading all these different things about it, this was actually a time in which women were exercising greater freedoms. They were advancing in society while also at the same time casting off moral restraints, exhibiting defiance against traditional roles, being more sexually active and practicing abortion, being priestesses in the temple, confusing men about gender who would castrate themselves to act like women. This was especially the case in prominent areas like Ephesus. So, does that sound familiar? Okay, we have gender identity crises. You have women advancing in freedom and rights, which is good in many ways, but also comes with this other area of uh, casting off moral restraints. Oftentimes, this is exhibited with sexual freedom and a lack of sexual uh, purity. And so, these radical trends opening up a more sexual world, a gender identity confusion, and he's speaking to a mixed bag of you would call traditional people, even non Christians, just traditional people and more liberal, progressive people. Paul's talking to this kind of audience. Once again, does that sound familiar? Yes, yes, it should sound familiar to you. What I don't want you to do, and some of you may, even those that might be skeptical, say, well, that was written for a time that isn't like now. Paul didn't understand the things that we understand now. That's not true. It's just simply not true. These are the things that are dealt with historically. So Paul's writing to a culture that though obviously externally has a lot of differences than ours, internally is pretty much the same in so many ways. Struggling with understanding gender roles. Struggling with understanding the wives, the roles of wives and women in society. Struggling to understand God's uh, sexual ethic. All of these different things are happening right now. And Paul is speaking to them, which is why, as we're going to see, Paul roots marriage not in culture, but in creation. This is important for us to understand because Paul's not speaking to a particular culture and just trying to shove marriage into that particular way according to what he knows. The reason why this teaching on marriage applies everywhere at all times is because it's rooted in creation. This is why it's relatable to us now. This is a timeless word. And so it might be informed by creation, you could say, but it's applied in culture. So marriage is informed by creation, but applied in culture, meaning that it's not informed by culture. It's not created by culture. Marriage is not something that culture makes. It's something that culture takes and applies in its life. We have to understand why that's so important because now you're going to see as Paul is not conceding to any cultural norms. He's not conceding to traditional people. He's not conceding to liberal people. He's not taking a blue or red side on any of these things. What Paul is doing is teaching us the role of marriage according to the Bible. And what makes this distinct from every other way of thinking about marriage is that Paul is going to emphasize how Jesus Christ is the revelation and information needed to navigate marriage. And apart from Jesus, you cannot navigate marriage. 
It's not about being traditional or liberal. It's not about how you grew up or how you did not. It's not about what culture thinks is proper and what culture thinks is improper. It's about Jesus and how Jesus informs and reveals the reality of marriage for us. This, you could say it like this, the pattern for Christian marriage is not culture, but Christ. And you should never take your cues from culture about how you should be married. Now, why is this? This is important. So this is the second category. What does marriage have to do with culture? And I want you to understand it's very similar to ours now. What does marriage have to do with with God? What does God care about marriage? Well, as I read in the text, at the end, verse 31 is actually a reference to Genesis 2, verse 24, when it says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. So what you see from that text, which may I just throw this in to remind you, the Bible is the most historically verifiable document in existence, taking out your Christian bias. It is by secular academic thinking, the most reliable document we ever have. And so if we're going to consider what does the Bible say about these things, we at least have to consider historically where marriage came from. If you want to know where marriage came from, you should consult the most historically reliable document in the world. That would seem to make sense to me, apart from my Christian understanding of things. That's just logic. And so now as we approach this, say, where did marriage come from? I Googled this. It's quite interesting because everybody says everything different, you know. Uh, Google's terrible for these types of things. Nobody knows anything like this. And they'll just say a few thousand years ago or whatever. Uh, So where did marriage come from? It came from God. Now, the important thing to understand about this is therefore marriage is a human, is not a human institution, but a divine one. Marriage, you could say, is a divine design. Marriage is a divine design. So God makes it, he designs it, and he institutes it into society. Marriage is not something society came up with. So it's the same thing like this. If we didn't define marriage, we can't redefine something we didn't define in the first place. You can't do that. I can't walk up to you and change your name. I can't look at Steve Jobs and say, well, I don't want to call it an iPhone. And I don't think it should be used to make calls. I think it should be used to hammer nails. And I'm going to call it a dummy phone. You know what? what? This is crazy. You'd be like, you have no right or place to go in and do that. You didn't create it. You didn't institute it. You didn't design it. So you have no say in what it is. Right? This makes sense, doesn't it? To say if God makes it and if God institutes it, then God's the one who decides what it is. It's that simple. And therefore, instead of us bringing our own cultural understandings into these things, we have to listen to what God says about it because he made it. Uh, And then you got to use things according to their design. I mean, the example I give often for this is if you gave me a glass, like a glass cup, and instead of going to get water out of it, I took it home and I began to use it to hammer nails into something I needed fixed. And as soon as I would hit it, it would break. And you would look at me and my kids would look at me like, what are you doing? What are you doing? What was, what's the phrase you would use for that? You could probably guess, it's not made for that. It's not made for that. And I could be like, well, I want it to be made for that. I feel like it should be made for that. It looks like it would be good for that. None of that matters. It doesn't work. It's not made for that. And so this is the same thing that's true for us when it comes to sexuality. It's the same thing that is true for us when it comes to marriage. When we don't use it for what it's made for, things break because it's not made for that. 
The reason why choosing to live a lifestyle of sex outside of marriage doesn't ultimately satisfy you, but breaks you is because it's not made for that. The reason why struggling to do marriage ends up breaking you is because you're not using it for what it was made for. And this makes perfect sense if God is the one who made it, then we must consult him on what he made it for so that we can enjoy it and use it to its best purpose. So a big picture thing about this with God is that marriage is symbolic of the gospel. What is God's purpose with marriage? Well, marriage is a symbol of the gospel. Marriage exists to exemplify the gospel. Paul says this very clearly at the end of this text we just read when he finishes his talk on marriage and then he doesn't say, I'm speaking about a woman and her husband. He says, I'm speaking about Christ and the church. So he takes all his practical talk about marriage and he shoves it into this big theological concept that what I'm really talking about, the thing behind the thing that I'm talking about is Christ in the church. Therefore, marriage is all about symbolizing the gospel. And to the degree that we symbolize the gospel in our marriage is to the degree that we live by the divine design. And in any way that we do not exemplify or live to exemplify the gospel in our marriage will be the same as taking a glass and trying to nail a hammer. It will break us. Because marriage isn't made for anything other than this particular thing. Now, there's a lot of sub things under that, a lot of wonderful things that happen in marriage that marriage provides. But it's made to exemplify the gospel. Paul says it explicitly himself. You see this all throughout the Bible. The covenant relationship between God and his people has always been described as a marriage, even throughout the Old Testament. The whole book of Hosea is an example of God's relationship to his people as an unfaithful wife. The theme of marriage as an understanding of God and his people has been true throughout the whole Bible. And now it gets even more clarity in the New Testament. Something I'll say often at wedding ceremonies is this, is that marriage is a telescope. You don't look to it, but you look through it to see something more beautiful on the other side. Your marriage should be a telescope. People should be able to look to you, but through the marriage to see something more beautiful on the other side. Therefore, we ought to understand these things so that we can live according to God's design. Marriage is symbolic of the gospel. We also have to understand, obviously, here that marriage is between one man and one woman. It talks about a husband and a wife. These roles are not interchangeable, and they are distinct in their use. And however you may think about that for a second, I want you to understand once again, I don't go up to Steve Jobs or Tim Cook and say, I don't want to call it an iPhone and I want to use it to hammer nails. I can't do that. I didn't make it. I didn't design it. I didn't institute it into society. So if God made it, designed it, and instituted it into society, then he gets to describe how it goes and what it looks like. And that only makes sense. So here's the third context. It's the context of Ephesians. So you have culture, big picture, you have God, big picture, and now I want you to shove it a little bit smaller into the context of us trying to work through Ephesians. Ephesians has been about the how to be saved. Ephesians has been about the local church. Ephesians lately has been about how to know the will of God, how to walk in love, how to be a light in the world, how to avoid certain sinful behaviors and how to grow in certain godly behaviors, overcoming anger, being sexually pure, walking in forgiveness, being careful with your words, being filled with the Holy Spirit, all these things about our life. And what we're going to see now is Paul's trying to address the places these realities get lived out. A way for you to say here is that the household is one of the primary places of spiritual attack, so we must fight to make it a primary place of spiritual protection. 
You cannot live out Ephesians apart from your household. The place where you're going to apply forgiveness most is going to be in your household. The place where you need to pursue sexual purity most will be in your household. The place in which you're going to need to control your anger most is going to be in the household. The place where you're going to live out your Christian experience and your walk with God for the majority of time with the closest relationships will be your household. Therefore, if that is true, and a church is only as good as its households, and a society is only as well as the order of its houses, therefore, our households are obviously now places of primary spiritual attack. The devil is actively at work to mess up your household. Therefore, it must be a place of spiritual protection, which, as we're going to see, is the husband's primary job. So what you also have to understand about Ephesians here is if you want to understand verse, like let's say 22, wives submit to your husbands, you have to understand verse 21, which says submit to one another. What we're going to see, and this is important for you to understand nuanced Bible teaching, is that it requires context, which means you can't tweet it. And some of you are living off tweets and you're not living off the context of what God is actually saying. And you could tweet one particular thing and say, how could God say that? Without understanding the long, you'd have to read the whole article. It's like people who take the headline and say, what a terrible thing. And then somebody's like, did you read it? They're like, no, but the headline was bad, you know? Like, hey, no, 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 you got to read it. You got to understand the whole thing. Okay, the last context, and we're going to get into now husbands and wives in just a second, is that you have a personal context. This is also important because I want you to understand, this is true for all of your interactions with the Bible, is that your initial distaste for something the Bible says, let's say if you have an, an, an initial distaste of it, could be a result of a few things. One is a simple result of misunderstanding it. Have you ever considered that maybe you just misunderstand the thing that, you, that sounds like something you don't like? Maybe you just misunderstand it. The second thing, which I think is true for a lot of you, you've had a bad experience when someone lives out their misunderstanding of it. So someone has misunderstood what God has said, then they've lived according to their misunderstanding, they've misapplied it, you had to live under that or in it, and now you have a bad taste for it because somebody misunderstood it and lived it out the wrong way, which I think is true for many of you. The third one is, and this is true for all of us because we all want to be God, is that your pride gets in the way and the fact that you would like to be God means we're automatically offended when God disagrees with us. You just need to go ahead and recognize that impulse in your life. Just admit it. Say, I want to be in charge. I want to be the boss. I want to lead my own life. I don't want nobody telling me what to do. This is the human condition. Just at least recognize that and say, maybe, maybe there's something in there that just doesn't want God to tell me what to do. And I should at least bring that into my assessment of whether I think something's true or not. I want to be clear that all of these things are very important to our lives, but have nothing to do with whether something is true and good. Nothing to do with it. Your personal experience of it has nothing to do with whether it's true and good. Nothing. It's irrelevant to the conversation. It's an aspect of your life which doesn't dictate whether a big thing is true and good. Okay? Your misunderstanding of it doesn't dictate whether it's true or good. So I want, you, I want to place this before you and give you a chance to hear me when we talk about how true and good God's design for marriage is. All right, let's get into husbands and wives. You still with me? Are we good? 
All right, all right. I'm, I'm trying. I was like, I looked at this. I had my wife look at this. It's, it's seven pages, okay? Normally, my manuscripts are like two pages. Kyle knows over there. He's like, I don't know how you're going to get through this. And I said, listen, I got to be very methodical, okay? I can't lose my mind. I can't sit up here and yell at you. I'm going to try to walk you through this, okay? So you're in class, and we're in session, all right? All right? All right. So stay with me here, okay? There we go. Amen. All right. So Paul closes this passage with these two words, love and respect. So I think these two words give us a good idea of what the roles are about, how he summarizes all the details. He says, love and respect. Husbands, make sure to love your wives and wives see that you respect your husbands. So I'm going to take those two words and I'm going to apply them to wives and husbands. And that's how we're going to navigate what Paul says. So the first word is respect. This is particularly to wives. Respect is an attitude that must be implemented in everyday life. I want you to understand that this is the essence of what Paul is after with the word submit. So he summarizes his teaching on submission with the final word, respect. So what Paul's really after, submission is the practical way you display an attitude of respect. Respect doesn't mean anything unless it's applied and lived out. And so this, I want you to understand this. Also, remember, I started with verse 21 on purpose, okay? So this is connected. The command for wives to respect their husbands is tied to the previous verse, verse 21, of mutual submission. It says here, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So now I want you to understand what's happening here. And this is why you need to read all of the Bible so you get context for what's going on. Christianity is a life, you could say it, of mutual submission. Just this is how Christians should live. Philippians 2 says, let not each one consider their own interests, but consider the needs of others more important than their own. First, first Corinthians 13 says, love is not self-seeking. Jesus himself, it says, came to serve and not be served. So the model we get for how to be a Christian is a life of mutual submission. Every Christian should be submitting to one another which means we should be laying down our preferences to serve others, which means that we don't walk into rooms or households or relationships thinking about our best interest. That's the Christian way. Why? Well, because Jesus lived that way. And so now the question is, well, how do I apply that general Christian lifestyle into marriage? You see how this makes a lot more sense now? It's not just a random out of the curb to say, I'm, I'm writing about stuff and then I'm gonna throw in there, hey wives, make sure you submit to your husbands. No, it's saying, hey, all Christians need to learn to submit to each other. What would be the question out of you? Well, how do I do that in my marriage? What does it look like to submit to one another in marriage? So now he's going to explain that and he's gonna do it with parenting too. What does it look like for a child to submit to their parents? What does it look like for a father and mother to lead well so that they're worthy of being trusted and obeyed? These are the things we're going to see. So it makes a ton of sense now to say, if Christians live a life of mutual submission, we give each other the benefit of the doubt, we lay down our preferences, we seek to serve and not be served, we are not self-seeking, but we're always considering the needs of others more important than our own. If that should be true of our everyday life and all of our relationships, then the question is, what does that look like in marriage? And now Paul's gonna explain. Paul's gonna explain what does that look like. And before I get into all that with wives, I just wanna, I wanna throw this in there for you real quick, all right? For the wives out there, if you don't like the word submit, would you prefer the word die? Because that's what he's going to ask husbands to do. So I just want to be clear, and I always remind you of this. If you don't like the word submit, do you like the word die better? Okay, you don't. No, you don't like the word die better, all right? So 
So he's going to speak very strongly to husbands as well and ask them to do even way more than he ever asked wives to do. So how do we do this? Respect. I want to give two aspects of respect, the benefits and the boundaries. So the first is that respect leads to blessings. So there's two angles of respect. One is I want to put before you the blessings of living a submissive life in the right way, which we're going to walk through and how it blesses you and blesses marriages. And then I'm going to put boundaries on it. Okay. And many people have overstepped their roles using the word submission. And I want to make sure there's boundaries on it. So the first though, is that respect leads to blessings. The first blessing is following Jesus and participating in his mission in the world which is inherent to doing marriage God's way. I read a commentary that said this, submission means sub to the mission. And the way he explained it is this, there is a mission for the Christian marriage and that mission is obeying and glorifying God. The wife says, I'm going to put myself under that mission. That mission is more important than my individual desires. I'm not putting myself below my husband. I'm putting myself below the mission God has for our marriage and my life which I thought was really helpful. It's a really great way to think about it. You're sub to the mission. The most important thing isn't the husband, but the most important thing is Christ and the mission he has on earth for your marriage. So you are not below, so to speak, putting yourself below your husband in that way, but you're primarily putting yourself below Christ and below the mission of God and living for that which obviously leads to blessings, the blessings of following Jesus, the blessings of living on purpose, the blessings of living according to your divine design. Paul uses this kind of language to navigate many relationships. Colossians 3, he tells us that basically you are serving the Lord Christ. So whenever you're going to work or whenever you're doing all these other things, the thing, who am I really serving? And if I have this mindset that I am submitting myself to the Lordship of Christ, and as I serve at work, and as I serve at home, and as I serve my children, as I serve my friends, ultimately I am serving the Lord Christ, it's going to help me place myself low so that I can walk in the way God wants me to, because although people may let me down, they may annoy me, they may bother me, they might not even be worthy of my service, we think sometimes, Jesus always is. So anybody without the help of the Holy Spirit can serve people who are very nice and bless them all the time. It doesn't take anything supernatural to do that. But what is unique is when Christians in their relational lives, not just in marriage, but in all contexts, can serve those who don't deserve it because ultimately we're seeing Christ and we're saying, I'm serving you to serve him. And although you right now may not be worthy of this service, Jesus always is. And this allows you to live a healthy relational life because now you're not doing tit for tat with people. You're not doing, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You're not looking for a thank you every time you do something nice. You're not waiting for them to deserve it or get their act together. No, you're free from all of that. Why? Because Jesus is always wonderful and always worth serving. So if you serve your wife to serve Jesus, you never have to worry about whether your wife's worthy of being served in the moment. Jesus is always worthy of being served. You don't like your boss and he's doing this or that or he's mean or frustrating or whatever you say. You don't have to worry about how that goes. Right now you're serving the Lord Jesus. How do you get the spiritual capacity to lay your life down? It's by looking at Jesus and he's always worthy of your time and your admiration and your service. 
How do you deal with people who betray you, friends who let you down? How do you deal with relationships? Obviously, there's a lot of nuance to these things. But the way a Christian maintains this is to always think, I am serving the Lord Jesus. Serving the Lord Jesus. How freeing this is. To say, I'm not serving you because you deserve it. And I'm not serving you because you're wonderful to me. And I'm not going to stop serving you because of this or that. But I'm serving the Lord Jesus. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us, whatever we do, do it unto the glory of God. So the primary thing of being married, whatever you do as a wife, do it unto the glory of God. Whatever you do as a husband, do it unto the glory of God. Whatever you do as a father and mother, do it unto the glory of God. Whatever you do as a friend or as a girlfriend or as a boyfriend or as a worker or boss or employee, do it unto the glory of God. So obviously, when we take Christ's way, this leads to blessings. The second blessing is the blessing of good leadership. Good leadership is a blessing to the world. Godly leadership is a blessing to a home. The blessings of sacrificial love, the blessings of being cared for and provided. These are wonderful blessings that God wants to give to your marriage when we live in these roles in an appropriate way. We see this because it says marriage is a representation of Christ in the church. It says that the picture is that the husband represents Christ. So as the church submits to Jesus, it says the wife should submit to her husband. Why? It says, well, Christ is the head, is the language it uses. And in marriage, the husband is the head. Well, what does the head do? The head provides direction, leadership, provision, guidance, sustenance. Who in the world doesn't want to be cared for? doesn't want to be under good leadership. Who doesn't want someone else to sacrifice themselves for them on their behalf? When you walk in the respect that God has for you as a wife, you position yourself to receive the care of good leadership. Now, obviously, you're pissed well, my husband doesn't do it. Okay, I'm not talking about that right now. I'm talking about what the ideal setup is. To say, as you submit, you position yourself to walk in and to receive the blessing of provision, sustenance, guidance, direction, care, sacrificial love. You're welcoming in somebody who ought to be laying down their lives to serve you. Instead of rejecting making your life better, you're receiving it by walking in under the submission that God has for you. I want you to understand as well that 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Timothy 3 connect headship to the order of creation, which happens before the fall, which means that these roles are not related to the fact that we have sin, but they are pre-set up before before the fall. So this is the inherent best way a marriage works. This is how it was supposed to work before even sin came into the world, and this is how it is supposed to work now. So that's what it looks like for, to respect. It's the blessing of following Jesus, submitting to the mission. It's the blessing of being under the care of good leadership, being provided for, having someone else deal with the craziness. You know what I'm saying? Like, imagine if you're Spino. As, I, as a leader, if I could just pass every hard conversation off to somebody, you know, I'd be like, oh, that would be great, you know? All I ever have to do is preach. I just pass all the hard conversations off. Every awkward moment, I just pass that one off. Everything that requires me to sacrifice, I just shove that one over there. You know, there's this idea, at least in marriage, not that you never do anything, but that you're just passing these things off. And the husband's supposed to take them. Everything that's hard, oh, there you go. Take it, take it, take it, take it, take it, you know? And obviously, we're going to walk through. There's some nuance to that. But that's the general gist is it's, it's a place of blessing and provision. It's a place where somebody else takes care of these difficult and hard things. That's what the Lord wants to see. 
You also have to understand that respect and submission has nothing to do with skill, gifting, or competency. It has nothing to do with whether the husband's smarter or would be a better leader. Obviously, many of you women are amazing leaders. You're super competent and super godly. And this doesn't mean that you should be leading your husband. It's not about inequality in that way. It's not about competency. It's about design, divine design. And you'll actually find that your leadership skills and your wisdom and all that you bring to the table are heightened and used more in the context of respecting your husband. You want to be a good leader? Well, we always say this with any leader. You have to be a good follower before you can be a good leader. That's true of any situation. You want your wisdom to be utilized? Well, then live in wisdom with your husband. Submit to his leadership. Give him counsel in that situation. Don't speak over him or demeaning to him. So respect brings blessings. The second thing is respect has boundaries. So I want you to see the good part. Respect brings blessings. It it benefits you and your husband to live in that way. Respect also has boundaries. It says here, in everything. So you must, wives, verse 24, submit to your husbands in everything. In everything now is a general, I'll describe it, a general disposition of trust, respect, and affirmation of the husband's leadership. When it says to obey your husband or to, sorry, submit to your husband in everything, what he's saying is a general, consistent disposition of trust, respect, and affirmation of his leadership. This does not apply to if your husband wants to rob a bank or if he asks your permission to sleep around. These are not, it's not, well, in everything like that. This has boundaries. This does not mean you submit even if he is abusing you. No, respect has boundaries. It's a general disposition of trust, respect, and affirmation, but not the kind that would lead you to sin. So that's the first thing we have to understand about boundaries. Here's another way I want to say it to help both of you out on both sides, husbands and wives. Submission does not require perfection. So some of you say, well, I'll follow him as long as he's just like Jesus in every way. I'll follow him when he's not a dummy no more. I'll listen to him when he actually does something right. I'll listen to him, boom, 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 boom. He's just like, well, why would I listen to him? You know, I know better than he does. I'll listen to him when he gets his act together. I'll listen to him when he sets a better example for me. I'll, you know, da, 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 da. Submission does not require perfection. Only Jesus can be perfect. You should never say, as long as he exemplifies Christ's leadership in every way, then I will submit and trust and follow him. That's impossible to do. Submission does not require perfection. Submission also does not require, the word I'm going to use is defection, which if you look up that word, it means a conscious abandonment of allegiance or duty. So you must also not say something like, I will submit to his desires no matter what. I must submit no matter what. That's also not true. Submission does not require defection, which basically means that following your husband should never require abandoning God. You are not required to follow your husband in a way that abandons God. Even as the apostle said, we must obey God rather than men. So submission does not require perfection. Your husband does not need to be perfect. Please don't expect this. You need to follow him even when you think he's a dummy. That's the whole point. Second thing is submission does not require defection. You're not required to submit to him no matter what. And you're certainly not required to obey him other than God. The third thing about boundaries is submission does not mean obedience. I think this is helpful. 
So in the context of marriage, Paul uses the word submit. In the context of children to parents, like we're gonna see next week, he uses the word obey. So there's a difference. The main thought here is that the wife is not to be ordered around like a child. Submission involves a voluntary choice, not forced obedience. Children must obey their parents. Wives need to, for the sake of their marriage and to do things God's way, voluntarily submit to the husband's leadership. Therefore, this does not make you husbands the boss and certainly does not give you the right to order your wife around. That's an abuse of power. The wives are called to lovingly submit to the husband's leadership. They're not asked to obey. And there's a big difference between those two things. I want to read as well now, and for some of you that have dealt with these things, I'm really sorry, and I hope the Lord continues to provide healing in your life. I want to give you six reasons why you should never follow your husband's leadership, okay? Six reasons why a wife can resist her husband's leadership. I got this from the exegetical Zondervan commentary. I thought they were very helpful, simple, and clear. So when should you resist your husband's leadership? Six times. One, when it violates a biblical principle. So if his leadership violates a biblical principle, not just a direct biblical statement, but a principle. Number two, when it would compromise her relationship with Christ. If following him or or submitting to him would compromise your own relationship with Christ, you should resist. If submitting to him, number three, would violate your conscience. Should not submit to your husband if it will violate your conscience. Number four, if it would compromise the care, nurture, and protection of your children. You should not submit. You should resist if it will compromise the care, nurture, and protection of your children. Number five, if it would enable or help facilitate the husband's sin. You should not submit. I think this applies often even to the bedroom. If it would facilitate his sin and lack of self-control. You should not facilitate your husband's sin. That's number five. Number six, you should, not sub, you should not be subject to physical, sexual, or emotional abuse. So if submitting to your husband means you must live in physical, sexual, or emotional abuse, then you must resist. All right? So those six reasons are biblical reasons why you would resist your husband's leadership. Now I want to give you practical ways you can submit. The first is to receive his care. Man, let him serve you. Let him help you. Let him lead you. It's really a blessing to uh, any husband who desires to care for his wife. It's a great blessing if you just let us help you. If you would just receive it. Encourage his leadership. Be proactive to affirm your trust in him. Join with him. Don't ever separate his decisions with the kids. You know, you should be one. Don't, don't undermine him in front of someone else. Encourage his leadership. Be his biggest fan. Tell him he's doing a great job. Forgive him when he messes up. Okay? Be an encourager. Make sure he knows you believe in him. Even when you're struggling to. You know, just just trust the Lord, okay? I already gave you reasons you don't have to listen. So now I'm going to give you reasons you should, things you should be doing. Resist taking control. Do everything you can to resist taking control. Resist complaining or undermining his leadership. And this one's financial. Live within the agreed means that you guys have established. (laughs) Okay, live within the agreed means. Okay, now like I said before, wives have to submit, but husbands have to die. So I'm gonna talk to you now. I want you to understand a husband that representing Christ is not a power play, it's a death sentence. 
Being a husband is not a power play. It's a death sentence. I'm going to mean that positively, okay? I love being married. But I'm going to show you what I mean. So it says love. So wives respect, husbands love. How are you supposed to love? Well, two aspects of love I'm going to show you this morning. Sacrificial love and personal love. The first is sacrificial love. What does it say? How are husbands supposed to love their wives? As Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? By giving up his life for her. This is very simple. So the call now is to lay down our lives for our wives. You are supposed to use your power and authority to serve, not to dominate. You are supposed to use your power and authority to serve, not to dominate. It's called servant leadership. Anybody who I've married or husbands who I've talked to probably already heard me say this. It's a very simple formula for being a good husband. Go home and die. See, people are laughing. I said, I said go home and you just want to know how to be a good husband? It's very simple. Go home and just die to yourself. Die to everything that you just die to yourself. Die to your selfishness. Die to the way things you want them. Die to your preferences. Die to the fact that you'd like to relax instead of doing this. Die to the fact that you wish you was doing this instead of this. Die, die, die. And I promise you, if you go home and die, your family will live. I promise you, I just guarantee it. If you go home and die, your family will live. And here's the irony. You say, that may be counterintuitive. You say, what about me? Well, I want you to remember the Bible's opposite day. You should probably, especially those of you in Christ, remember this phrase where Jesus said, if you want to save your life, you must what? Lose it. What's the pathway to having a good life in the kingdom? It's to lose it. What's the best way to live as a husband is to die. What's the best way to enjoy life as a father is to die. What's the best way to be an honorable friend and a good coworker is to die. What's the best way to live is to die. And of course, it's counterintuitive to you. You're a human. Why don't we listen to God as to how things work? Go home and die. It's that simple. And if you die, your family will live. And ironically, not ironically, counterintuitively, when you die, you will also live. The best way to enjoy being a husband is to die to yourself. The times you'll enjoy being a husband most are the ones where you die to yourself most. Why? Because you're locking in to God's divine design. The times you'll enjoy fatherhood most is when you're dying to your desires the most. Why? Because you're locking into your divine design. Your love is a responsibility. I want you to understand this regardless of her behavior, health, or appearance. Your love is a responsibility. You have made a covenant before God. And it is not dependent on her behavior in any way whatsoever. It is not dependent on her appearance in any way whatsoever. It is not dependent on her health in any way whatsoever. You must understand this as a husband. You cannot love your wife unless you deny yourself. You cannot love your wife unless you deny. There is no form of love, real love in marriage that does not include self-denial. You cannot love your wife as an addition to your life. You must love her while denying yourself. A practical way I'll tell guys this a lot is you must lay down 95% of your preferences so you can lead well in the 5%. Of course your wife is going to trust you if you spend your whole life laying down your life for her. 
You say, well, I mean, all he does is take care of me, look out for me, help me, serve me, provide for me, just take all the hard things. All he does is just wherever I want to go, whatever. All he does is lay down his preferences. So when he says, I really think God wants us to do this, it means something. If you lay down your life 95, if you lay down 95% of your preferences and just the way you would like to do things, you're going to have a ton of weight when it comes to that 5% that really matters. Okay? So just spend your whole life laying down your, your life for your wife. The Bible says here that Jesus is going to cleanse us with the word. The picture, the marriage picture is that the people of God are cleansed by the word of God, by the blood of Jesus applied by the Holy Spirit in our lives. The word here applies primarily to the preaching of the gospel. What it's saying is the biblical theological picture is that Jesus takes the gospel, which is his life, death, and resurrection. He uses that to purify a group of people, to forgive them of their sins, which some of you need to receive today. And then once he does that, he presents this people beautiful and glorious to himself, which was eternity is like, is that you and me and all of the people of God will finally be what we were made to be. We will have no fault and we will be be glorious and beautiful and have a perfect relationship with Jesus. That's what Jesus is doing theologically, biblically in our lives. So therefore the marriage role of a husband exists to do similar things is to prepare and help present your wife to God spiritually beautiful in every way. I want you to understand this. You should love and serve your wives in a way that helps them love and obey Jesus more. You should love and serve your wives in a way that helps them love and obey Jesus more. Their submission to you should make them trust Jesus. Their respect for you should help them enjoy Jesus. As they follow you, it should lead them to Jesus. You should love and serve your wives in a way that helps them love and obey Jesus more. The goal, the ultimate goal, is not that they would obey you, but that they would obey Jesus. The ultimate goal is not that they would just be so admired by you, but that they would be enamored with Jesus. The ultimate goal is that your relationship would lead them closer to Jesus. Practical ways that you can do this as a husband. Actively deny yourself and seek her well-being. Care with compassion when she is sick or unhealthy. You need to care for her when she can give nothing in return. You need to guard your language. For many of you, you need to guard your eyes. You need to spend quality time with her and engage with her emotionally. You need to lead her in love and not boss her around. You need to learn her needs and meet them. Recognize her gifts and encourage them. Take initiative in conflict resolution and do not be self-centered. Okay, the final way here is personal love. How are husbands supposed to love their wives with personal love? It says, as they love their own bodies. It's the same idea of love your neighbor as yourself. If you wish to be treated a certain way, then you treat somebody a certain way. If you want to take care of yourself a certain way, if you don't want someone to hurt you, you don't hurt. You know, it says love your neighbor as yourself, love your wife as your own body. Now, some of you, this is connected because you do not care well for your own body, therefore you do not care well for hers. And because you don't take care of yourself in a dignified, respectful way, you do not have the capacity to do that for her. You're supposed to love her as yourself and to love your, to care for her as you care for your own body, but you do not apply much care and concern to those areas of your life. You do not use much self-discipline and therefore it makes it difficult for you to do that for others. The biblical model here is that Christ takes care of his church. We know this, those of you who know these things in, the, in church say, we are the body of Christ and so Christ takes care of her body, his body. Therefore now we as husbands ought to take care of our body 
which is our wives in this sense, metaphorically. And here's where I want to close with this, okay? This is true for all of us, is that we can only act like Christ toward others when we access what Christ is towards us. Okay, this is true for all of your relationships now as we close. We can only act like Christ toward others when we access what Christ is towards us. We can only represent him to the degree that we are present with him. We will lay down our lives for others when we consider deeply how he has laid down his life for us. We will happily serve others when we consider deeply how he has served us. We will forgive quickly when we consider deeply how he has forgiven us. We will be gentle, merciful, kind, and gracious when we consider how he has been gentle, merciful, kind, and gracious with us. We will be patient when we are bothered, when we consider how patient God is with us. You only have the ability to act like Christ towards others when you access everything Christ is towards you. And to the degree that you enjoy what Christ is for you will be the degree in which you are able to distribute that to others. And some of your limits in life and your, incapa- your, your lack of capacity to be a good husband or wife is simply related to your lack of devotion to Jesus. And if you would be more devoted to Jesus and you would spend more time with him and hear from him more clearly, then you would have increased spiritual, supernatural capacity to apply those things to others' lives. The reason you're still bitter is because you haven't meditated on the forgiveness of Jesus. The reason why you're unkind is you haven't meditated enough on the kindness of Jesus. The reason why you won't forgive is because you haven't realized how much you have been forgiven. The reason why it's hard for you to lay down your life is you haven't wept over the reality that Jesus laid down his life for you. And if you would access everything that Jesus is for you. You would have supernatural ability to be that for others. The last thing you need is 10 more tasks and things to do to be a better person. And that is not what this is. This is not a talk on five ways to be a better husband. This is not a talk on four ways to be a better wife. This is not a talk on how to be a better human being. This is a gospel talk that if you receive everything Jesus is for you, you will be enabled supernaturally by the filling of the Holy Spirit to give give that to other people. And your only chance to be a better husband is to follow Jesus more devotedly. The only chance for you to submit as a wife is to love submission to Jesus who's always perfect. The only chance you're gonna have of dying to yourself is if you sit every day with a God who died for you. This is your only chance. But it's not a burden for you to carry. And if you would simply surrender to Jesus and fix your eyes on him, he will help you be the husband and the wife that you need to be. Let's pray and let's respond to the Lord now. We'll have the worship team come up and there'll be a prayer team down front. If you need prayer for anything, you know, please come pray. Don't be too proud to get out of your seat. If you as a couple need prayer, please do not not get up here because somebody will think, oh, something's wrong with their marriage. Something's wrong with every marriage. Every single marriage on planet earth has something wrong with it, okay? So if you need prayer, come pray, get prayer, all right? Let's get the help that we need this morning. All right, let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your love for us in Jesus. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for marriage as a good gift. We thank you for all that you've done in our lives. And we thank you for the opportunity we have to display that to others. I pray that the households here at City Light would be in good order. That husbands would lay down their lives for their wives. That wives would readily and lovingly respect their husbands. And that there would be a beautiful dynamic that displays the gospel. I pray that you would allow some in this room now to forgive, that you would allow some to find healing. 
pray for those who have come out of bad marriages and left because husbands didn't lead well. I pray that you would give grace to them this morning, that they would sit under your perfect leadership. I pray for those who, husbands who maybe have messed up or failed and want to do the right thing. I pray that you would encourage them this morning, that this wouldn't sit as a burden on their life, but that you would encourage them with your love and kindness and the opportunity to restore things that have been broken. I pray for marriages that are barely hanging on, that you would strengthen them. I pray, Lord, that you would do all that you can do in the midst of all of our life circumstances. We love you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Why don't you stand? Let's respond to